Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josiah. I'm the resident here at the Barberton campus. I get to hang out with our students and our small groups. I get to clean Joel's car when he wants me to and all that fun stuff. Uh, but I love being here. I love getting to be up here this week sharing with you guys as we continue our series. I don't know about some of you, but I hope you had a great Valentine's Day, even if you're single or whatever it is, if you're ready for the snow to leave. I know sometimes this time of year we're just done with the snow. We're like, okay, I'm, I don't really like February. But for me, this year has significance for a couple of reasons, especially this time of year, these couple of weeks. First off, is Valentine's Day dinner, okay? So my mom would always make this awesome feast, and we'd all get to have it just as a close, intimate family. And normally, we'd have holidays where we'd go to other family members, extended family members, and have all these other great meals, but with everyone else. It was nice to just have our close, intimate family at this Valentine's Day meal dinner. And it was, she always did some kind of meat and potatoes. We actually got to enjoy it last night, uh, and it was a great time. And what was unique, too, for us is that she'd put candy all over the table, which was weird for us because she's a health teacher, and we never got to see candy any other time of the year. So it was a great time to just celebrate together and eat together all this great food. But not only that, two weeks later was my birthday. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> And I'd get another personalized feast, because we would do whenever it was your birthday, you got to choose what food you wanted to have for your birthday. So I'd get another great feast two weeks later, after I finally recovered, probably, from the Valentine's Day dinner. I'd get another one, and I was like, oh, yes, best time of year. I get two great feasts, right? And so we all know what a feast is, right? Whether we have a birthday party, or we have uh, different celebrations or holidays that we have, we know what a feast is. And if you're joining us this morning, we are going through our series, The Way of Change. Practicing the presence of Jesus in my life. And that tagline is the foundation of what we're talking about. We've been looking at these different disciplines that we can practice, but it's not about just doing those things and that makes us good or better. It's about using those disciplines to put us in the presence of Jesus. The first week we talked about John 15, where Jesus says, Hey, abide or remain in me. The focus is Jesus. These help us put ourselves before him so that we then enjoy him in his presence. That's what these are all about. And we've looked at a bunch of different ones. We started off with community. We looked at solitude, simplicity, gratitude, all these different disciplines to help us connect and enjoy Jesus and his presence. And today, guessed it, we're looking at feasting, right? That's what we're going to be looking at today, which at first you're like, okay, discipline for feasting? Like, I got that one down, right? I, I always say my love language is food because, yeah, I got that one down, right? I can do food. Food's really good. Like, I know how to eat. I know how to party and have a feast, right? Is this really a discipline we need to practice? Fasting, on the other hand, we're like, yeah, we could all do with more fasting, right? But Joel gets to cover that next week. He gets all the non-fun ones. I get the best ones. I got you know, community. He got solitude. I get feasting. He gets fasting. You know, all these different, <laughs> different ones. But he'll unpack that really well next week. Um, but today we're talking about feasting, which at first we're like, okay, what, what does this even mean for us today? And I think the challenge for us is we don't depend upon the ground on a daily basis. Instead of going to the ground for our food, like an agrarian culture, where do we go? Aldi, right? Grocery store, Giant Eagle, Acme, you name it, right? We go to the grocery store. I don't know if you guys know this, but fruit has a season. Just because you can get strawberries any time of year, it's not actually how it works, okay? They don't grow all year round, okay? Some of you guys, whoa, 
what? No. Fruit has a season. Yet we can just go to the grocery store and get any kind of food that we want at any time that we want, and we can go there. Sometimes maybe they'll be out of milk, and we just have to wait a week until they get more milk, right? We go to the grocery store. So we don't necessarily understand this dependence and this need for God to provide us for the ground to be healthy and to produce fruit from the land. I, don't, I think we miss this kind of providence, this providing that God provides through the ground. We don't see that as clearly today, but he still does provide. And I think as we look through scripture, we'll see a common thread all the way through of food and feasting. Starts in Genesis, all the way in Genesis, creates man and woman, puts them in a what? Garden. Yeah. Garden's full of Food. Yeah, good job, guys. All right. Garden's full of food. He says, hey, cultivate it, keep it, and eat. He acts, that's one of his commands. He says, hey, eat everything. Except for the one tree, right? Which we always get hung up, like, okay, well, what? That one tree, okay, well, that, yeah, but the one tree. But we forget that he says, eat everything else, right? He says, eat. In our translations, it says, surely eat or eat freely, right? In the original language of the Hebrew, it actually repeats the word, eat, eat. Okay? It's eat, eat, because, yeah, do it. It's repeated for, for, hey, emphasis, do it. Eat the food that I've put before you and enjoy it. It starts in the garden and continues. He actually uh, implements festivals for his people to party together. We're actually going to look at that here in a little bit. But he talks about feasts for his people to do, to implement as part of the law. Later in the Old Testament poetry, we hear about this idea of the table and food and feasting with other people. Uh, you guys may have heard of Psalm 23, or the shepherd psalm, where we hear about that, and it goes all the way through, and at the end it says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Right? This idea of preparing a table is this idea that you're now taking care of the well-being of whoever you're inviting to your table. You're taking care of them. And when God does that for us, he's saying, no, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to take care of you. And when he does it in front of our enemies, he's showing the world, saying, yeah, I'm going to take care of these people right here. I'm preparing. I'm caring for them. I'm providing for them here at the table. And so that idea continues into the New Testament. And we see this all the time with Jesus. He preached it all the time. Where was his first uh, miracle? A wedding, right? A party. That's where he did his first wedding was at a party, right? And he also has a miracle of feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, where he ends up with more food at the end than at the beginning. And he also, he does uh, a bunch of parables that talk about feasts in these stories that he uses. He likens a lot of his descriptions of the kingdom of God to feasting and to eating and enjoying that table together. He also practiced this all the time. Actually, in Matthew 11, he constantly is feasting with people. They call him a glutton and a drunkard because of how much he's with people, with tax collectors, sinners, enjoying that time together. He invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. He eats with Mary and Martha. He sits down with the, the Pharisees and, of course, the Last Supper with his close 12 disciples. But also the church practiced this as well, not just Jesus. Acts 2, 46, it says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And of course, the last book, Revelation, the author, talks about how time is going to end. We're going to finish at a party. At the wedding supper of the Lamb is what it's called. We're going to celebrate a wedding supper with Christ, with the Lord forever in eternity. We end in a party, guys. We end feasting. This thing goes all the way through the scriptures. And so I would first say God has a heart for feasting. If you're taking notes, God has a heart for feasting. He's intentionally placed food and feasting in our lives. Yet, we only just missed it 
if we focus what's on the table than what's meant by the table. David Mathis would say it this way, the heart of feasting is not the food itself, but the heart of the feasters. Yes, God has a heart for feasting, but the reason is because he cares about our hearts, because that's what's meant by it. It's our hearts that we bring to the table. And of course we know this, yeah, it's not about just eating all sorts of food, right? There's a deeper meaning to it, and there's a discipline to it, but what does that look like? That's what we're going to uncover today. And so there's a reason I have the table up here, and I keep referring to it, and I'll hopefully refer to it, you know, through the rest of it, help you guys understand. Once you grasp this image of a table, if you guys can't quite see in the back, you can look at it after. It's all this nice little glass stuff that aren't mine. They're my mother's, okay? I don't own any of these. But the idea is that you get this picture of a table, an idea of this discipline of feasting. And this isn't my idea. There's a history to this uh, on where this comes from. Uh, Before, we've talked about the rhythms and the rootedness of the Amish and the Jewish people when we looked at the rhythms of Jesus. And a lot of that comes back to their table. The Amish, for example, have all sorts of prayer books, hymn books, and the Bible, of course, that they all use and read around the table for their family, giving them rootedness in this connection. The Jewish, as well, all of their highest holy moments, where do you think they happen? Not at the synagogue, the table. Their feasts, their celebrations, family rhythms happen right here. Fun fact, do you know what the most published Jewish book is, other than the Bible? If you actually know this, it would be impressive. It's called the Haggadah. Everybody say Haggadah. Okay, you can forget that. It means, yeah, I don't even know if I pronounced it right. It means calling, or not calling, telling. And it's a guide for specifically the Passover meal. So this entire book, this big publication that the Jewish people love and, and connect to, is about feasting. It's about one meal and how to, how to read, how, what to do, what to say, what to eat, how to eat it, what it all connects to. All this stuff tells them how to meal, how to feast and eat together. Clearly, the table was a center place for the Jewish people to come and find connectedness and rootedness. Yet today, I feel like we've just removed the table from our lives completely. Whether it's because we're uh, entirely busy with work or extracurriculars and student activities and sports and you name it, Our evenings are full of anything but the table and the family and coming together. And maybe when we finally get to the table, it's distracted. TV, with phones, whatever it is, it's not this connectedness that it used to be or that it should be or could be. And so that's the reason there's the table here. And I think that's what we're getting at in this discipline. The table becomes both the physical and the metaphorical center for our family to find, here's the word, identity. Identity is our key word here with this table, and as we practice this discipline, what we're doing is we're placing our identity in front of us. We come to the table and say, yes, this is my identity. This is what it is. This is my reminder, all this stuff. And so the question, what we're going to look at, how we'll unpack this is, okay, well, what is my identity, and how does this come to light in front of me through feasting, okay? So we're going to go to the first place that God talks about this idea and commands it, of his people. We'll be in Exodus 23, 14 through 16. You guys can either flip there. We'll also have it up on the screen as well. But as you guys navigate there, I'm going to give you some context because we're jumping right in the middle to a bunch of stuff going on. So Old Testament is the narrative of God's people. He calls a person, Abram, renames him Abraham. And he says, hey, I'm going to make a bunch of people through you. 
and does a bunch of crazy cool stuff through Abraham, and eventually they have 70 people and their family get down to Egypt, and God just multiplies them, right? All these people come out of Egypt, but they get enslaved because they're, whoa, there's all these people here. Let's do some work with them. And they enslave them, and they're in slavery in Egypt, and they cry out to God, like, God, save us. So he does. He works through Moses and brings his people out in this mass exodus, right? Hence the name of the book. So there's this exodus that he leads them out of, and he takes them straight to Mount Sinai, which is where we're at, where he gives them the law of his people and how to live and who God is, how to relate to the world, all this stuff. That's what we're jumping right in the middle of. He's giving them the law at this mountain, okay? Exodus 23, here we go. Three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in that month, you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. I know I've definitely breezed over this before and probably a lot of the rest of the law parts. I don't know if you guys are in your reading plans right now where you're going through the Torah still, and it's like, okay, I think he said slaughter a bull five times already. It just kind of gets repetitive. You're like, okay, this seems to be a little bit boring, but it's not. In this, he's saying, guys, I want you to party. You guys all know, you probably can picture that guy, long, this is definitely stereotyping and maybe not be true, but the long hair guy, skinny jeans, who's like, I love Jesus and I like to party. We say that jokingly, but he's like, no, I want you to party. I want you to celebrate, to do several things with this, but to celebrate and party. That's what's going on. And so he gives us three that we're going to unpack, and we'll see the rhythm that we find with it, and we'll see how that implements for us today with feasting. First, the festival of unleavened bread. Festival of Unleavened Bread. Now, this feast was to be celebrated for seven days, and they'd be eating bread made without yeast. And all this was to remember their time in the past. This was a past-looking feast that looked at what God had done. The, the thing that actually starts off this festival is Passover, okay? Passover. And now, many of us may know and have heard of Passover, but that points to the Exodus, point to God bringing them out of Egypt. So what would happen, right, they were they're going through the 10 plagues, right, that God was delivering them from the, the Egyptians, and he said, all right, I'm going to send my angel of death, and he's going to kill the firstborn. He's going to kill the firstborn. He's like, I'm going to provide a way out. I'm going to provide a substitute. What you have to do is slaughter a lamb without defect in place of your son, and take that blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintel, and then when the, the, the angel of death comes around, it's going to accept that blood as a substitute, as a sacrifice for their son, and pass over their house, and their son would be spared. Hence the name Passover, and they celebrate that and remember that, saying, hey, no, this is about remembering. This is what first festival is about. It's like, hey, no, we're going to remember through this feast, through this festival, what God has done, how he's brought us through this, how he's provided a way of salvation through the, the lamb, and we're going to remember that because it's a big event that he used to eventually bring them out through this max exodus out of uh, Egypt. So what does this festival then mean for us today? How are we to remember? Jesus actually celebrates this and gives us some insight in Luke 22. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. 
For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So he observes Passover, right? He's, he's a Jewish person celebrating this, but he does a lot more here. He connects it with what he's about to go and do. He says, this bread, my body, cup, my, butt, my blood that's going to be poured out the next day as he went to the cross. He would go and say, hey, I'm not just liberating you from Egyptian slavery. No, I'm liberating you from something that holds all of us captive, and that's sin. He's saying, that's the liberation that I'm bringing you. I'm that sacrifice. I'm stepping in your place. You deserve to die because of your sin, but my blood that's put on the cross, on the wood of the cross, is now saving you and passing over you for killing you for your sins. I'm now dead in your place, and you can take my righteousness. This is what I'm showing you. This is what I'm about to do on the cross tomorrow. And he reminds us of that. He gives us a remembrance that we can do. It's a fulfillment of this feast, and it shows us, and it points back, and it all connects. There's so many other things that connect here. But what are we remembering today? We are remembering God's rescue. This is the first thing that we do. We remember God's rescue. When we come to the table to find our identity, hey, we remember what God has done in the past. Remember that he's rescued us. Remember the cross Often when we've been in church for a while, we're like, oh yeah, the cross, it's great, I know what that is and means. But don't ever let that get stale. Constantly remember what God has done, the cost that it took for him to be there, taking our place on the cross. That's the first one, and we remember. We remember when we feast. Second, the festival of harvest in Pentecost. So, Originally called Harvest, but eventually renamed Pentecost, which means 50. Because 50 days after the Passover happened in Egypt, here they are gathered at Mount Sinai. So at this mountain, God binds himself to the nation of Israel with a covenant. He said, hey, this is a covenant that I'm making with you. I want to show you how to live and show you who I am right now. Show you how to live in the present world to show the world who I am. This has a present day focus. The last feast had a past focus, remembering this was a present day focus, reminding them who they are, who they were to be, how to live, and who God was in the current day present. This feast was a a way of reminding who God was, what they were to do, and their instruction for the present. But what does this mean for us today? How are we to be reminded? Well, the name Pentecost may have tipped you off. It comes up later in Acts 2, starting in 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Immediately, as a Jewish person, you're there and you see all these things happening. The fire, the wind, the gathering of God's people kind of gives you a flashback of Sinai. Right, where the presence of God is on the mountain as a pillar of fire, right? And he moves in the thunder that happens there. You're, the gathering of God's people, you're like, wait, there's all these connections to Sinai. And that's exactly what happens. God shows his people how to live in the present by sending his spirit to live in his followers. When we say yes to Jesus, his spirit lives in us. We often say, yeah, Jesus lives in my heart, which is actually his spirit that lives inside of us when we say yes to him. 
And that came down at this moment. And the Spirit is our, our guide. He shows us how to live in the presence, how to walk with God, how to be with him, how to understand his word, how to read and grasp what that means. What are we reminded of today? We're reminded of God's guidance. That's what it is for us today. When we come to the table, that's what we're, we're seeing. We're like, okay, I, I know what I, I, I might remind, remember the past, what God has done. But hey, what does that mean for me today? I remember, hey, God's guiding me. Whether I feel lost, confused, whether I'm hurting in pain, whatever it is, we can come to the table and be like, okay, yes, God's guiding me. He has a plan for my life right now, how I'm to walk out every single day of my life. The final one is the Festival of Ingathering, also called Tabernacles or Booths. Tabernacles, just a fancy way to say a temporary tent, really. Um, And that's what they were to do for this festival, is to to take time to dwell in tents for a week. And now when you're reading this at that time, this was actually a future-looking festival. So we have past, present, and future. future Future-looking festival, because after this, what happens in Leviticus and Numbers after they leave this mountain? What do they do? They wander, right, for 40 years until they eventually get to the, the, the forward promised land that God said he was going to give them and bring them into. And so what are they doing in the, the wandering? They're living in temporary tents. They're living in tabernacles. But they were staying in that only for a temporary time, hence the name, right, until they got to the anticipated hope of the promised land. And that's what this feast was about, was about anticipating looking forward to what God was going to do, longing for the hope that he promised. So what about us today? What are we anticipating? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. That word there uh, is tabernacle, um, and that's not a coincidence. Paul contrasts this idea of earth, sorry, earthly bodies with heavenly bodies. I can't help but think of bread. Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> but he had an earthly body that was decaying, crying again in the service. Uh, an earthly body that was decaying, his lungs full of just decaying and weren't going to work forever. But now he has a resurrection body where his lungs work and will never fail. He's with God forever, never going to deteriorate. Excuse me. And we live in those temporary earthly bodies right now. We may not be going through what Brad did, but we may have some physical struggle that we're going through, uh, and that we have the anticipation and the hope of a future resurrection body with God forever, that it won't decay, and that we can be with him forever. And so what are we anticipating? We're anticipating God's rest. When we come to the table, we get to look forward and see the rest and the hope that we can have in God, that no matter what our struggles are presently, because of our earthly bodies, we have a future hope. These are te- temporary tents for us. These were never meant to last. <sighs> Thanks for bearing with me there, guys. So that is the festivals. And that's what we see and can find our identity in. When we come to the table, 
we can look in the past and remember. We can be reminded of who we are. And we can look to the future and anticipate the hope that we have. We find that identity there when we feast. And that's where we see God show up in our lives when we practice this discipline. It becomes real when we party. Um, on a lighter note, um, this past year, for the uh, first time, actually, at uh, New Year's, we tried a fun um, opportunity dinner for the first time. We did a progressive dinner with a bunch of my fa- uh, friends of mine, and uh, we have, there's like five of us that live within five minutes of each other in the same city, which is really unique and cool, and so we took advantage of it uh, at the time, and um, for the rest of us, there's all tissue boxes in the back. Those colds, man, are getting everybody. Someone's got to stop cutting onions. Um, but uh, we would do this dinner to where we'd start at like 5 o'clock and just rotate to each person's house uh, throughout the night and enjoy cheese and crackers at one, salad at another, and all the different things that you can have. We had soup, I think, at one point, and, and then we had the main dinner, and then we had dessert, and all the way up until midnight. My wife and I didn't make it to midnight, but it was fun to go around to each of the different tables that each person had to be able to enjoy that community, that time together, to feast together. And we didn't do this intentionally, but as I've you know, kind of been going through this and studying this, kind of reflecting it, my wife brought it up to me. She's like, oh, you're going to bring that up? I'm like, oh, yeah, perfect example. What we did, we did a little bit of each of those. We remembered. If pearl of it was the time of year, but we remembered what happened this past year, how God brought us through different things as a family, as people, and who we are. And it helped us talk and get to know each other better just through remembering that. And then we were reminded who we are and what's going on, what God is doing right now in our lives. We were praising the fact that, guys, we're five minutes from each other. We can just literally walk to each other's houses. Like, how cool is that? Like, God's doing some cool stuff. And it was really unique to be able to experience that and be reminded, hey, yeah, this is what God's doing in our life right now. And of course, being at the new year, you anticipate. You look forward into the next year and for excitement about various things and where God's going to move your family and take your family. And so we did that. All throughout the night, we actually had like a different question at each person's house. of like, oh, okay, now you got to answer this and answer this and all this. It was actually a great time, unintentionally, but became a great time of feasting for our family where we find identity with other friends and family. And so we won't all have time, obviously, it was at seven hours, <laughs> to eat food every single night and just span it all out like that, or even every week, that's hard to do. So what does feasting look like today? I want to kind of give us three areas, uh, sections, um, that it looks like for us before we uh, take off today. First, as the church. What does feasting look like today as the church? Large scale, we practice communion today. Many of you have been a part of that. Many of you do that. And that's kind of what uh, Jesus was doing at that last supper. And that's how we celebrate that today. At Grace Church, we actually do threefold communion, which the three different components that have that past, present, and future aspects. I don't know if you knew this. Bread and cup looks at the past, right? Looks at what Christ had done. His body and his blood poured out for us. Like We remember that. We look at that and we celebrate, yes, this is what Christ did for us. Remember do this in remembrance of me. But we also do the foot washing. It's to remind us that, yeah, we still struggle with sin and can still come to the Father and ask for forgiveness. We don't need to be completely cleansed again because he has saved us. But we still need to come to him and say, God, forgive me. Help me to become more and more like you. 
foot washing is a reminder of that. And of course, the love feast, talking about Revelation 19, right? that, that final supper where we'll get together and spend eternity with God, that love feast is to anticipate that, to look forward to that and say, ah, yes, we get to be a part of that someday in the future, and we're excited for that. So that's the large scale. On a small scale, I think we see that in our small groups as well. Whether we actually get together weekly to eat, uh, some groups we've done that, other groups, we still do it, I think, on a different level. We come together, and what do we look at? Look at the Bible, which is what God has done in the past. We see what he has said, and then we look at how that reminds us how to live today. Right? How do I walk this walk today? What does it look like to follow Jesus? But then we also anticipate and saying, okay, where is he leading me? Where is he taking me this week? Where, what does it look like for me this next week to follow Jesus? There's, there's that triple aspect as well to our small groups and when we get into those and, and study God's word as a church. So that's the first thing I think they can look like as a church for feasting today. Uh, second, as a family. Now this, I mean specifically just your family and we'll get to others here in a second. Um, but I think there's something about being intentional to feast as a family unit. Uh, I think that's something that maybe we've lost as a culture. Um, but remember, the table is about identity. And as the family, we can come to the table to find family identity, yes, a rootedness together, but also identity in God and God alone. And so, there's lots of ways to do this. This doesn't look like so many different things. Grace and I have been trying our own stuff, pulling from things that we've done with our families in the past, and this looks like lots of different things. But keep that, that remembrance idea of all three ways, whether it's, hey, how has God been faithful in our past as a family? What has he brought us through? Remember how he's taking care of us. But also remind yourselves what he's doing right now. Like, hey, how is God using our family? What is he doing through our family? Or what are the dreams God has for your family for the future? Where is he calling you? Where is he taking you as a family together? Bring the table back as the centerpiece, physically or metaphorically. I know sometimes tables can be hard to have or, or a bigger table, whatever it is. Like, just give that yourself, that family identity, whether it's a weekly rhythm, and we'll talk about uh, a Sabbath and what that looks like, whether it's a Sabbath meal once a week, Friday nights kind of thing, uh, something that you can weekly connect with your family and give that rootedness. Um, sometimes, and this is something that uh, it's been, I've been wrestling with and struggling with as we've started our family. Uh, often, you, you just come down for dinner, and then you just pray a quick prayer, right, at the beginning. It's like, okay, God, thank you for this food. Pray you bless it. Amen. And if you're hungry, it goes faster, right? <laughs> um, but if that's the only part that God is part of our dinner and eating, I don't think that's what he had in mind. Uh, one small example, Grace and I had been trying to read a chapter of the New Testament every time we get together at any dinner, whether it's just a quick, hey, we're eating, and just trying to enjoy that, and just that's been so life-giving to start conversation about like, oh, hey, he talked about this uh, miracle. That's pretty crazy, and then just talk about that, and it really just brings life to our table and what we're doing as a family. Um, I tend to eat really fast. My family knows this for a fact. I just, it's just inhale food, which it sounds like a silly small thing, but I'm like, I'm rushing through this. I should slow down and enjoy what God's given me, what he's blessed me with, enjoy the other people at the table. Um, just some other questions that we've asked ourselves to kind of help each of these directions. To remember what's been a rose or thorn for your week, for your day. Rose, obviously being a good thing. What's been a, a blessing, right? A thorn, what's been something that's been hard? Something you rest through. Everyone go around and say, hey, remember what's been going on. 
Remind yourselves, hey, what are you thankful for right now? Right now, what are you thankful for? And then anticipate, what are you excited for this week as a family? So as a church, as a family, as an opportunity is the last way that I think feasting looks like today. And we would say this as gospel-tality. It is gospel-centered hospitality. Maybe you've heard that term before, but it's a great way to show the gospel through our hospitality. We get to open our home, freely invite people, give them a free gift of food, and get to show them, hey, this is the love of God. It's exactly what the gospel is, a free gift. People are welcome to take it and can enjoy the love of God through it. Uh, Christine Pohl says it like this, Hospitality is a lens through which we can read and understand much of the gospel and a practice by which we can welcome Jesus himself. Often we think of hospitality, we think of businesses, we think of degrees that we can get in hospitality, we think of just those people that are really good at making food and just, they have that gifting, I don't, right? And although that may be onto it, hospitality is different than entertainment, completely different. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia, means the love of strangers. The opposite of that word is xenophobia, the fear of strangers. Which one do you tend to lean towards? The thing is, hospitality has always been a heart of God, to love the stranger. Not just family and friends, those people are easy to love, generally and easy to invite over. But invite over the people that may not invite you back. Uh, Leviticus 19 it starts with this idea. He says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Hebrews 13 as well. It says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Luke 14 as well, this is Jesus saying, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite those people to show them the gospel, to show them who God is, to invite them into that table to see that identity that you have, that you have in the Lord. The Jewish hospitality, they saw this as one of the greatest and most prized social virtues that they could do. They saw the home as a sanctuary and the table as an altar. And not to take this literally or anything, but how do we view our table? What is it used for? Storage? Or when we come together, is it distracted? Is it God-centered? Is it even food-centered? Sam Alberry says it this way, your home may be one of the most significant weapons in God's arsenal that you possess. Your kitchen table may be very every bit as significant as the pulpit in making known the love of Christ, which seems pretty drastic. So I'd ask, who can you use your weapon on? <laughs> Funny way to say it. Who can you invite into your table? I'd first say, start with yourself. Is your identity in God? Because if your identity isn't even in God, then all this is pointless. You need to first say yes to Jesus, understand, remember what God has done in the past, say yes to his sacrifice, recognize you're in sin and need to turn and live his way and to say, yes, I accept what you've done as Lord and Savior of my life. You need to start there for yourself. And then with your family, 
What does it look like for your family unit to have this rhythm of feasting, this identity in God as a family together? But then others as well. Who's your heart ache for? Who can you invite in to feast? Who can you invite in to practice the presence of Jesus with your feasting? Because as we look and try to find our identity here and in God, what do we see? We see other image bearers. People are made in the image of God. And so when we come together as people, we see other reflections of God together. And that's what we get to enjoy at the table with other people. It's not about some crazy fancy feast, all the china, right? Like, Bill, it's the table here. I don't own any of this, so I don't even have fancy china, nor do I want it because I will break it. But the point is not what goes on the table. It's when, what's meant by the table, right? It's also not about being fat Thor either. If you guys have seen Avengers, but uh, it's not just about being by yourself and eating a bunch of potato chips or whatever, right? Or just eating a lot of food even too. Sometimes uh, we think it's just about eating a lot of food, but gluttony is actually a distortion of what was meant to be good. Uh, And here's how, this is the full quote from David Mathis that I mentioned earlier. Feasting is not first about the food. It is foremost about the Godward celebration of some specific occasion together. Good food and drink in abundance come in alongside our corporate focus to accentuate the appreciation and enjoyment of God and his kindness. The heart of feasting is not the food itself, but the heart of the feasters. A true feast is bigger than the food, infinitely bigger. The center is God and his greatness and grace toward us in Christ. So I challenge us, let's have theocentric tables. Fancy word just to say God-centered tables, but the two T's kind of make it kind of cool. Theocentric tables, right? We can come together, find identity in him, and celebrate that as a discipline and see that together, practicing the presence of Jesus. So let's join God at the table to remember what he's done, to be reminded of what he's doing right now, to, and to anticipate the hope and the rest that we can have in him. Let's pray.